you've been paying attention, you'll recognize that our three scripture readings this morning have been parts one, two, and three of Psalm 147. So let's finish the back portion of Psalm 147, starting in verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gate. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. This is God's holy word. At this time, I would like to dismiss all children ages three to kindergarten to go ahead and go out to Children's Church. My understanding, the McClellans are going to be taking Children's Church this morning. So again, children ages three to kindergarten, you are welcome to head out for Children's Church. I'll give you a moment to get out. Last week, we officially closed up the final passage from our book of Jonah. The closing verse of Jonah, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Just like that, Nineveh is saved. When Jonah came to them, he preached, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And Nineveh's response, the people of Nineveh believed God. From the greatest to the least of them, there was fasting and mourning and a call to repentance. The king said, Turn from your evil way and from the violence that is in your hands to all of his people. The end of this story seems like it should be the beginning of a very happy story, a very happy chapter in Assyria's history, a period of great revival. Maybe Israel and Judah would find a new ally in these Assyrians that have humbled themselves before the Lord. But unfortunately for Nineveh, this was not the case. The sparing of Nineveh came as but a temporary reprieve. Like I had said, throughout our time in Jonah, it's a book that most of us are at least somewhat familiar with. And maybe not the finer details, but especially now that we've spent some time in it, I hope all of us could at least give the gist of Jonah and that it is much more than just the story of the guy who got eaten by a fish but that it is the story of God's faithfulness and it is a story of the fact that salvation does indeed belong to the Lord and he dispenses it to those whom he pleases. 
So most of us could have at least the gist of Jonah. Even before I preached Jonah, I think most of us at least had some concept of what Jonah was about. The book of Nahum, on the other hand, enjoys no such place of familiarity in most of our minds. Unless you are on a dedicated read through the Bible in however long reading plan, the chances of many of us having spent much time in Nahum recently is fairly small. And even if we have spent time in Nahum, chances are we have not really dwelled too deeply on it. It is among the least known and least preached books out there in Scripture, and yet it comes as something of a sequel to Jonah, which is probably one of the better known of the prophets. And Jonah ends with a cliffhanger. And I don't know about you, but in books or movies or television shows, there's this sense of it ends with a cliffhanger and you want to go, well, what next? And here we get to find the what's next. Some background of what's going to be going on in Nahum. I hope that many of you will remember that Jonah's visit to Nineveh happened somewhere around 760 B.C., and at this point, the unified kingdom of Israel had split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and that Judah was typically the more faithful nation, although not perfectly so. In the next 40 years after Jonah's visit to Nineveh, the Assyrians then returned to their wicked ways, and in 722 B.C., the city of Samaria, the capital of northern Israel, is conquered by Assyria, and the northern kingdom essentially ceases to be. It has been taken over by Assyria, and its people are put into dispersion sent throughout the Assyrian kingdom, a common tactic of the Assyrians to completely disperse the entire nation. And much of that history is recorded for us in First and Second Chronicles as well as Second Kings. And Assyria's march through what used to be a unified Israel stops with a failed siege of Jerusalem in 701 B.C. I bring this history lesson because it's important for us to recognize what is going on as a background to what we are about to dive into in the weeks to come. Lord willing, the book of Nahum should take us till about Christmas. And we need to understand that Assyria is no longer just a thorn in the side as far as Israel is concerned. They have become the outright enemy of Israel. They are a full-blown nemesis of the Hebrew people at this point, bringing great violence and great oppression to God's people. I also want to bring this up because we have to make some important points as we delve into Nahum. Nahum is a prophetic oracle against Nineveh. The prophet comes before the people and says, this is the word of the Lord, and he brings it. And yet, interestingly enough, 
Nahum's name means comforter. And if you read this book, you likely will not get a real sense of comfort unless you understand the incredible wickedness of the Assyrians and the incredible oppression that the Israelites, the Hebrew people, had been experiencing. And so, although this is a judgment against Nineveh that is being revealed, it's not being sent to Nineveh. It is being sent to God's people, letting God's people know that Nineveh's time has now run out. The oppression that they are leveling upon God's people is about to come to an end. Some prophecies that we hear are prophecies offering a second chance. Jonah was a great example. He came and said, this is what you must do. You must turn or you will be destroyed. There is not a or else here in Nineveh. There is a definitive judgment of God. This is what is about to happen. It's not written to Nineveh at all. It's an incredibly severe pronouncement of wrath against Nineveh and an encouragement to God's people that they can be encouraged because Nineveh's reign of terror is about to come to an end. Perhaps some of you may have heard it said that if the Bible were made into a movie or a series of movies, it would only be doable if it had been given an R rating for 18-year-olds and older because of the content contained within these pages. This book alone would give a great case for that argument. The imagery in the book of Nahum can be incredibly gritty and gruesome and downright frightening if you allow it to be. And it's not always going to be easy for us to hear even as God's people. It can make us uncomfortable to think about the incredible wrath of our God. And yet, even as we have gathered around the Lord's table this morning, we need to understand the incredible wrath of God. If we have any hope of understanding the incredible grace that has been shown to his people. One thing that we can remember is that the country at which this judgment is going to be leveled was incredibly brutal, even by the measures of the times. There was an absolute terror that was associated with the Assyrians. They would skin their victims alive. They would blind them. They would impale them on stakes. We will hear later in the book of Nahum about how they would dash babies upon the roads and they would level cities to the point of being utterly unrecognizable, not a stone left standing. And that leveling of such cities is exactly what happened to Samaria, the capital of Israel. These are the people upon whom God's judgment is about to be poured out. But even more importantly, this oracle given to Nineveh is recorded in God's holy word. And as such, we need to remember that this word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is useful for reproof and training in righteousness. It is breathed out by God, every single word of it. Nahum is here for a reason. 
And we as God's people are responsible for making sure that we understand and that we are trained in the whole counsel of God's word, even the difficult parts. I want us to be prepared that this is not your typical book of the Bible that you'll be hearing read on devotional programs on the radio too often. But God's word is always worth reading. And it is always worth understanding. Even the difficult chunks are recorded for God's glory and for our good. This morning is a bit of a shorter service. And I want us to have the time to prepare for Nahum. But it is also important that we take some scripture from here. And I don't want to rob from Nahum quite yet. But this scripture helps to put us in the right frame of mind. So I hope that you will pray with me, and then after that we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 1, and we'll be starting in verse 16. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is found in it, and that all of it is good, all of it is useful, all of it is given for your people to know you, that we might glorify you. And we pray that we would not shy away from the truths found in your scripture, even the difficult ones. We pray that the difficult truths you would help us to understand and understand rightly in light of the rest of your word. And Lord, as we continue to worship you through time in your word this morning, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would Soften our hearts, open our eyes and our minds, that we might be ready to receive from you the, your truth. Lord, I thank you for each one of my brothers and sisters who are here that we could celebrate at the Lord's table today. Thank you that you have provided another day for us. We know that there are many among us who are ill or shut in or unable to join with us. We thank you that we do have the opportunity to broadcast this online, and we pray that those who are unable to join would be joining with us in this way. And we pray for health for our people. Lord, it is difficult to experience the weakness of the human body. But Lord, even in our weakness, you are made strong, and may we be aware of that. And may each one who is ill be made aware of that. And Lord, we thank you so much for our families. We thank you particularly for the safe arrival of Tabitha. And we just pray your blessing upon Maribel and Sito as they begin this journey of parenting this little one. We ask that we as your church would be engaged in helping each family that is a part of this church. There are so many families in this church that are hurting, are struggling, or even just trying to go day to day about parenting their children, and you have given us a family here to be able to build one another up and strengthen one another. So whatever the situation of these families may be, biological, adoptive, foster, kinship, or even just family by virtue of being a part of the church. We just ask that we would be a people that would strengthen and care for one another in all circumstances. 
that we would find ways to build one another up in the instruction of your word, that we would be able to bring good biblical counsel to one another and bring your word to bear upon all of the different struggles and situations of life, reminding one another in times where maybe it's easy to forget. And Lord, as we have a meeting coming up after church, we just pray that you would be preparing our hearts and Again, by a work of your Holy Spirit revealing in your word the truths that must be made known. And God, as we have wrapped up Jonah and are working our way into Nahum, we pray that you continue to impress upon our hearts the truths that we have learned in Jonah and preparing our hearts for the truths that you would bring out in Nahum. And we thank you that you have given us your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Isaiah chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Perhaps you might wonder why we would go into Isaiah when we're about to go into Nahum. But this passage of prophecy is made by Isaiah in Jonah's day. You remember from our time in Jonah that much of the message of Jonah is designed to prick the conscience of God's own people. The idea that even rank pagans such as the sailors or the Ninevites would repent of their sins and turn from their idols, how much more should God's people be doing the same? In preparation for our time in Nahum and for our good in God's glory, I want to bring two things out of our passage this morning. The first is the grace and faithfulness of God towards his people. And the second is the severity of God's wrath and justice towards his enemies. This could very easily be the image for all of Jonah and Nahum. But towards my first point, the grace and faithfulness of God towards his people, I want to look at the offer being extended here. Turn from your wickedness and I will cleanse you from your sin. I will bless you. What a beautiful promise for God's people. But now I want you to scan your eyes up to verses 1 to 4 of Isaiah 1. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, 
but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The people being offered this incredibly gracious opportunity at redemption are not a people who have treated well with the Lord. They are a faithless lot and prone to rebellion. Across all of Israel's history, they have displayed a pattern of wandering from the Lord, except in times where they have found themselves in great need of his salvation. This should remind us of ourselves, for we are not so different. And yet, this faithless lot receives a promise. God promises them that if they would once again turn from their wickedness, that they would be again reconciled to him, finding themselves both forgiven and blessed. There is a severe residual warning, however. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you've spent much time in the Old Testament, you'll know that one of the means that God regularly uses to discipline his people is the neighboring peoples, the neighboring nations who opposed Israel. The Assyrians were used by God as one of the great afflictions against his people for their unfaithfulness, bringing out the incredible pain and suffering that Israel, the northern kingdom, experienced. The prophet Micah, which comes in between Jonah and Nahum, prophesied the judgment that would come upon the northern kingdom. God says of the capital of that northern kingdom, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. And sure enough, Samaria was utterly destroyed, and the people of the northern kingdom were taken into captivity and dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. Isaiah's warning that we see this morning are, is given to the southern kingdom of Judah, lest they too receive the same judgment that is about to be befall the northern kingdom of Israel. In Proverbs 3.12, we're told that the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The Lord is reproving Judah. But a good father does not discipline without cause, and Judah has given God more than enough cause to bring such discipline to bear. And yet he gives another chance to pull up. It's like the parent who has caught their child in a lie, and they know they're caught red-handed, and the parent gives one last chance. Come clean now and we can avoid the consequences. So as we work our way into Nahum, I want us to continually call to mind the faithfulness that God has shown towards his people, a faithfulness that, as we can see, is totally unmerited. This faithless, 
wandering, idolatrous people are yet again offered a chance at redemption. God's long-suffering patience is on display, even in the face of such a stern pronunciation of judgment against Nineveh. The second piece of the puzzle for this morning is the justice and wrath of God against his enemies. The people of Judah were at something of a precipice. God's faithfulness had never left his people, but his people had left him. They, God calls them an estranged people. And they were on the verge of being treated as enemies of God, objects of God's wrath, and rightly so. Again, still, God was not abandoning them. But to refuse and to rebel was be, to be subject to the wrath of God. What that looked like in this morning's passage was to be eaten by the sword. But the difference between his treatment of God's people and the way God would treat Nineveh in Nahum can be found in verses 25 to 28 of Isaiah 1. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. The people who would turn and repent and return to God, their nation was to be purified from the dross from those among them who are hardened in their sin. Nineveh was being offered no such handout because Nineveh was not the Lord's people. These were a people utterly consumed in their wickedness. But God had made a promise to his people, to the Hebrew people, and he had said that he would not leave them nor forsake them. And even in the incredible discipline that they receive at the hands of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or any of the other nations that they have been afflicted by throughout their history, even in that judgment, that judgment was being done for their good. That judgment was being done to bring them back and to purify them and restore them to righteousness. Nineveh was not being restored. It was being utterly thrown down for its wickedness. God is so incredibly good and patient towards his people. But ultimately, whether it was a citizen of Israel or Judah or even to bring it home this morning for us, even if for a professing Christian, there's a common truth. As our Savior said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Otherwise, you are but a member of God's people in name only, not in truth. I said earlier that Nahum was both a pronunciation of judgment against Nineveh and good news for the people who are being oppressed by the Assyrians. 
We know that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only means of salvation, even for those from the Old Testament. Even the people in the day of Nineveh and Jonah and Nahum, Jesus is still the only means of salvation. Their faithfulness towards God in that time would be ratified in the coming of Jesus Christ. And that is one of the things we celebrate as we come around the Lord's table, that all of God's faithful from all time are dependent upon Christ. But we also know that for everyone else, everyone from all time who has not confessed from their hearts that Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that God raised them from the dead, everyone who has refused to obey his commandments, and even in the time of Nineveh, everyone who has refused to worship Yahweh as the one true Lord and God, Matthew 25, 46 says that these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The good news of the gospel is that at one time all of us were in the camp of those who would go away into eternal punishment. All of us were children of wrath, enemies of God, and much more akin to the people of Nineveh than we would like to admit. Deserving to be eaten by the sword. We take a look at the wickedness that's going to be described of who Nineveh was, and we shake our head going, how could any person be so evil? And if we do not realize that our own hearts are more than capable of such evil, our hearts are constant factories of wickedness without the sanctifying work of Christ, then we miss the point. We could easily have been like Nineveh if not for the saving work of Christ. 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, made while we were still enemies of God, not based on our own works, God says to us, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That same offer of redemption that is being made to Israel by Isaiah God brings before his people and gives them that promise. So we must also turn from our own wickedness, just as Judah had to turn from their own wickedness and recognize that Judah was not overtaken by Assyria. The siege of Jerusalem was a failure and these people, the people of Judah, were preserved by the Lord because they had turned from their wickedness and called upon the Lord. So let us also recognize and learn from the warning that we can see in Isaiah 1 and see that through the work of Christ we are no longer subject to the judgment that is deserved by all who have rejected Christ, but instead the hope of one of God's own people. And I know that many of you have been around for my preaching through the book of Hebrews, if 
particularly the warning passages of Hebrews. And we have spent time recognizing that those warnings are not idle. Even though that God has already determined what he will do, even though that God has chosen whom he will save, he has chosen his people from before the beginning of creation, those warnings are there for a purpose and those warnings are there as a means by which his people might be protected and preserved and saved. So we also need to be warned by the severity of the judgment that is going to be brought to bear upon the people who have rejected God. So we can't just write all of Nahum's pronunciations of judgment off as, well, those are for those evil, wicked people. Without Christ, we are those evil, wicked people. But also we can be encouraged by God's grace and his care for his people. Judah did not deserve to be saved by God. We did not deserve to be saved by God. And yet God is good. God is gracious. And for some reason that is beyond our comprehension, that only God knows, God has decided that he would save for himself a remnant, save for himself his people, that he would direct us upon the narrow path and keep us to the narrow path by a work of his Holy Spirit. And for that, we can be ever incredibly grateful. And at all times throughout Scripture, particularly in these incredible pronunciations of God's power, we can be amazed at the incredible character of our God. His perfect justice and holiness is on display when he is coming against such wickedness. He is not going to let these things stand. His graciousness and mercy is on display when his people who do not deserve it, who are suffering at the hands of such wicked people, God saves them. And in all things and all throughout Scripture, our Lord is making his greatness known to all generations. And for that, we can be thankful. And for that, we can be encouraged. And that should drive us day by day by day into worship of our Lord. Would you please pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible grace and care that you have shown in the book of Jonah, that we can see so clearly that salvation does belong entirely to you, that you saved Jonah regardless of whether he deserved to be saved, that you spared Nineveh regardless of whether they deserved to be saved, and that you have done such a work in our hearts. You have saved us not because we are worthy to be saved, but because you have chosen us. And for that, we are ever grateful. And Lord, your justice and your wrath makes us uncomfortable at times. We see it and we cannot even imagine what it would be like to suffer such wrath and thank, to, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, 
that if we have trusted in him, that we will never experience the fullness of your wrath. For he has experienced it on our behalf. That these judgments that you have poured out on Nineveh are only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to your wrath against unholiness and wickedness. And we deserve every one of these judgments and more. And Jesus experienced the full weight of your wrath. And that as fully man, he was able to do so on our behalf. And as fully God, he was able to experience those things totally on behalf of all who would call upon your name. Everyone that you had given him. Lord, this is beyond our ability to even begin to show our gratitude for. We pray that you would work in our hearts daily, that we would not take for granted a single day where you have continued in your faithfulness to us. And Lord, we look forward to the day where we get to see you face to face and we get to see the nail-scarred hands of our Savior and worship you in even greater light forever for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for all of your attributes which are on display throughout your word that we might know them in truth and not just in faith. But for now we place our faith in you, our trust in you, and we pray that we would not take lightly the warnings of Scripture, but that we would be warned by them And by your Holy Spirit, you would use those means to cause us to cling to you. We thank you for these things, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, would you hear our benediction again from Ephesians chapter 3? I pray that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.